Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Yes, hello, hello, Susan. This is Paul calling, Paul Holdengraber calling you, and I'm speaking, I think, with Susan May Salas. You are from halfway around the world, wherever you are. Well, I'm I'm in Los Angeles, and, and since you have asked me where I am, or at least I've told you where I am, where are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm out from the city. I just escaped, and I actually was thinking of you because the last time we were going to travel a distance together that we never managed to do. So here we are, ending yep. up on a phone. No, it, it, it's uh, true. So, so um, just just to 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 let our listeners know of our plan. I remember we had a conversation many, many, many years ago at the Onassis Foundation, and we spoke about cosmopolitanism. And I asked you about it in one form or another repeatedly. And what you said, which is so intriguing and which I really would like to make good on at some point in life, was that in order to do that, in order to understand cosmopolitanism, really all one needed to do was take, I can't remember, maybe it was a Q train or some such train, some such subway train in New York, and go go from one end to the other, and one would have traveled through a hundred different cultures. Something like that, and also that um, not knowing, actually, it wasn't one particular line or another. The queue was just in the recent train that had opened up, I think. Right. But, you know, just that idea of going somewhere with not knowing where it's going to lead you, that was really, I think, and and the kind of the possibility of assimilating and, and making sense of the world from by being in it. So what an appropriate uh, transition to... <laughs> the difference of what it feels like right now, where I haven't been on a subway since March 16th, I think. So there you go. Right. So I love the notion of a subway because of, A, the diversity in it, in the New York subway is a particular special place to remember what the world is within the subway as well as outside of it. And, 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 And what also interests me in what you, what you just said, Susan, is that you have often traveled in that way. Um, not quite knowing what to expect or, you know, going somewhere and not knowing much about the culture you're going in. And therefore, with this nearly naivete, this newness, one might say, which is the origin of the word naivete, you were able to immerse yourself. Yeah, I think, well, I think this question of, well, boy, since we're living in such uncertain times, I think the question of the unpredictability of life, living that life, what that meant, certainly in many, many, for many decades of my life, though differently now, but you know, that idea that you, you go somewhere, what can you know before you are there? You think you know, whatever you read or whatever you've heard, it's different to live it and be in the present of it. And and that's, I think, the biggest challenge about these last months, actually, is sort of where one can be present. Um, and as you know, I mean, movement has always been the kind of 
a magical space for me, moving from one place that's familiar to a place that's relatively unknown and then becomes knowable in some way, something like that. Something so like, this is hard. yeah, it, this is hard, it's, it's you know? very it's hard. hard. It's very hard. And and how? So so now you're you're I, I suspect in the country in the countryside. Yeah, I just I spent the first few months in in my studio, which was very uh, you know hmm, how can I say? Actually, it makes me think about um, where you anchor and then you explore from that place, right? So the studio is not the place I usually well, the studio is the place that I leave and return to, and the multiple piles of my life reflect all the possible paths I could take again somewhere, return to place, etc. So the studio is, is a kind of psychic space for me. Mm. Um, so being there is also about being still, and being still has been a place that in some ways, um, I don't know, maybe I'm more fearful of stillness than movement fundamentally, you know? So this had, this period is very complex, not multiple stages of it, um, obviously, and as we're all living, even if we're living it, you know, in isolated ways or individually and collectively, you know, different iterations from the first stage, you know, of COVID and the next stage. I mean, first with COVID, you can imagine for me, to have to self-isolate was very painful. I did not want to depend on other people's eyes. I wanted to be as close as I could be, and of course, I couldn't be. So, so that's so, where so, so in, in, in in a way, my my the question that comes to my mind, and I think you've answered it, and I'm I'm sorry if you've answered it, but I'll ask it nevertheless. Um, d during the initial months of 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 the pandemic. Did you, in fact, um, take pictures on the street? Well, I I took very few. So, again, you know, for someone who thinks of their life a lot, uh, there's been a lot of witnessing and getting close, as close as one could, you know, or thinking even sometimes that by getting closer to the center of something, you would find the place. Well, the place was not findable for me. So very early on, I had to refuse the possibilities of going to various places um, and watched what happened around me. I think one of the first set of photographs I made was a block from my home, which was a very special memorial made to um, a man named Mo, the local butcher, who was almost 90 and um, died alone in a hospital, you know, the days before. And so that really touched me that, you know, my neighbor, the person that I'd known for probably 45 years coming Goodness. and going in this neighborhood was gone. And of course, you're reading, reading and hearing about the many, 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 many others. Um, so I've made sparing few photographs, mostly of my neighborhood where I could walk from the distance of a bike ride from my home or the studio, as it were. And um, until this last period, because this last period of what, let's say, since Memorial Day, um, the, the performative public space has been a possible space to not be too close to, but at least be part of in some way. And so I, you know, I have been able to photograph somewhat in the last few weeks, but not very much COVID related except the landscape. You know, the, the, the landscape of the absence in New York of the life I knew there, actually. 
You know, you, you were talking about the, the, the butcher, and I, I imagine, did, did he die from, from the pandemic? Yeah. He did. Yeah, yeah. so not, not, not totally clear, of course. Um, he died in the hospital, so it's, it's not, we don't know. I mean, I don't know. His granddaughter left an, a note on the door, and people responded with photographs of Mo and flowers for Mo, and, you know, it was a beautiful memorial. Um, that stayed for many, many weeks there. You know, I, so I, I, don't, I, I, don't ma I mentioned this in part because, you know, you, you immediately mentioned how long, and, and one of the things that I have found enthralling, Susan, in, in immersing myself in your work is just how connected you remain to projects, sometimes over decades, and, you know, as if there was an an endless, uninterrupted dialogue, conversation you needed to have. And I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm wondering why it is so important to you, Susan, to have this sustained relationship with your subjects. And by subjects, I obviously mean uh, both the subjects of uh, that, the photographs you take of, of people, but also the subjects that you feel drawn to. Mm. Boy, it's such a... Um, you know, you you just are who you are at some level. I don't know. I see this long, long history of going back, not to go back to every photograph or every person in a photograph, but certain sets of photographs are kind of, you know, there are these markers. So the return gives me a sense of my own, the distance I've traveled in return right. to where they've gone, has untaken and could have been. Um, I just, I just was having that conversation today in a completely different arena, but because I'm working on a show that and an exhibition can be the object, but then there's the people behind the object. And because the object may be installed, but they can't be seen because the museum will be closed. We're working on a virtual rendering. And so suddenly I want these voices of the past of the people who are present in the photographs to come forward in this virtual way, in a way that it's more difficult to manage in, in a physical space. So we're, I just was having a conversation about an hour ago about some of those voices. And um, my own voice included, because my own voice now is different than the voice that might have rendered a, a place in time when I was in the most, the most immersed, let's say, in the midst of it, the work and the relationship, and some of those relationships are no longer there to call upon. So I'm left to tell the tale, as it were, and I wish they were here with me. And when, when, you, when you say voice, you, you mean it quite literally, you know, that, that oftentimes in your work you, you record audio of your subject speaking. And, yeah. And, and yeah. One, yeah. One, one wonders, why would a photographer need to do this? And you've done it again and again, I think, with with extraordinary yeah. success. Well, you know, I think audio is so such a powerful medium and it's very different than reading words. Mm. And even though sometimes the recordings end up as words in books that people can, you know, flip through the pages and read, the audio was very early on so powerful for me. So, you know, Carnival Strippers, even with the Prince Street Girls, which was work I did around my neighborhood, you know, recording and hearing the different perspectives of people that were in and outside of the frame of the photographs has always been part of that, the concept of that work. And in fact, you know, right from the beginning, I wanted those voices 
heard by in the gallery, in the spaces where the work was shown, which I've been able to do in some places, not every place, but it's very important to hear people who are being fixed in photographs. It transforms your experience of the work and in that the work is about the work from both perspectives, you know? It's not just my work, this object, it's the relationship of an object to a subject and how they feel about being in the frame that I've perhaps made, hopefully in a collaborative spirit, but not always um, fully understood by either of them. You know, I don't know where the photograph, after I make it, will end up and become part of my life or what it means in their life. Um, So even in the very early days, giving photographs back to people was so important, but hearing how they saw themselves in the photograph was also central right from the beginning. So interesting. It it, it created a whole flurry of, of, of images for me and, and recent memories. I've just been watching again uh, the, the films of Michael Apted, Seven Up. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. And, you know, and it's just so interesting. You know, he, he recorded uh, children who were seven and then 14 and then 21 and then 28. I know how to count. And it went all the way yeah. to, I think, 64, if I'm not mistaken. And the, yeah. the, 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 the obviously, a lot of their memories are now supplanted by the memory of seeing themselves. And I imagine that, mm-hmm. that part of that must be your process, too, is that you look back at it you you remember the former self you were but you remember through the pictures perhaps memories that you wouldn't otherwise have and that's that to my mind is also so interesting and when you when you when you took let's say the 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 photographs of the strippers and you you captured their voice at the grain of their voice it's also important i imagine because to some extent it permits them to have a voice rather than just to have an image. It permits also for us to not judge them in the way we, we might, but to, to feel a certain empathy. It, it reminded me of that well, wonderful line of, of, of Walt Whitman who says, be curious, not judgmental. Mm, mm. Well, I think fundamental. that is the fundamental for me, absolutely. But, you know, voice um, has emotionality and hesitations and you know it's it's just such an expressive form um and it doesn't have just the intention you know it ha- it's the spontaneity of the ways in which the words flow and what people do or don't say i mean when you think about abstead actually what's interesting about that long longitudinal study is that people come in and out of it they, mm-hmm. they want to reflect and then they choose not to reflect and so even even with, um, I think that's always, you know, that's always a choice. So there's a, there's a kind of affirmation in looking back, and also it can be painful. So for some of active subjects, I think they chose not to continue um, being visible publicly in that way. Um, so it's a, you know, it's an offering, but it should never be an assumption that there's the right to there's always a revisiting and what revisiting, you know, offers both. I think the photographer, the photograph person, as it were, you know, um, when I went back with pictures from revolution and tried to make sense of the photographs that I'd made 10 years before and the, you know, insurrection, I had no idea what had happened to people mm, and, and mm. couldn't think everyone. Mm. But in the end, I was much less interested in making a photograph of that person 10 years later than hearing them, seeing their lives, seeing what had unfolded, 
and what they themselves were making sense of those lives. And the choice that, of course, they had been the protagonists and, and fought against Samosa and, you know, the revolution on was unleashed and of course now we're at a fortieth near a fortieth anniversary or just after a fortieth anniversary and I I wasn't as lucky as that to get the support to go back again and again because film is an expensive proposition where, you know, a photographer's life is can is pretty economic actually comparatively. So I so I go back and see people in time over time in that project. Um it doesn't have the same register as this very disciplined approach that Aptek took. It, you know, it's a different kind of invitation to reflect on not just one's own life, but the collective life that surrounds them as well. Yeah, it's an extraordinary project of collective memory. And one one um, question I've been I've been really wanting to ask you for a long time is: you worked early on with Frederick Wiseman on basic training. Mm. What did you mm. What did you learn from him, and what has remained? Well, that's a great question. I was I was um, taking my first class and actually only class in photography, and wanted to think about film simultaneously. Mm. And that was, believe it or not, forbidden at that time. You had to choose one path or the other. So I worked as Fred's assistant editor, which meant I just sat and you know put reels of film together. Um, what I learned by looking, by listening, by thinking maybe even about Fred, who, who as you know, wasn't the shooter. He was the, he was the recorder of sound. So maybe, maybe that's what, that's something that I took away from being sitting endless hours in that studio by his side. I mean, probably I was learning to listen. And I think, actually, I think listening has a lot to do with photography too, but most Mostly we're impatient at times and think we have to make the picture or rather take it. And I think making a picture is listening and being ready and receiving in some way what's, what's happening around you, responding. Um, and that's a lot about listening, too. So. I, I love this notion. Uh, also, the, the fact that you use the word take. It's as if, you know, you, mm. you have to have a take instead of being open in the way that listening makes you feel porous and open. I always remember my mother saying to me, you know, Paul, we have two ears and one mouth. <laughs> That's a great. Yeah. Well, take and make is very strong dichotomy, really, because there are people who, and I hate the word, shoot, right? right. It's such an aggressive word. So taking is part of shooting, is part of being a hunter, is very different kind of than a gatherer. And I think I've always been on the gathering mm. side of that equation. And it is a spectrum. Um, you know, even Cartier-Bresson, you know, who waits for a moment that someone will pass. He places himself, but he waits. So waiting and listening and, and you know, seeing a frame in which multiple things might be happening and and what you frame within it and what you leave out, of course, is as important very often. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I think um, the urgency sometimes is there to make the photograph, but not make it meaning direct it. And so that's the other part of the waiting. Right? I think, you know, it's interesting, the word take, thinking about Fred. And of it course, really is. You know, because take in film, if you're sitting in L.A. and take is how many takes when you're making a you know how many takes and, does it take yeah yeah how many takes does it take and in my work 
I would never um, expect someone to do something again for me. So I'm pretty conservative. If I miss it, I got it, I missed it. I anticipated I was in the right place or I missed the moment. I'm pretty um, traditional in that sense. I don't know why. It's just sort of the, the vocabulary. My vocabulary is to be be as present as I can be, but really, I, you know, aside from a kind of portraiture mode where there's a lot of that performative exchange, I'm really more the fly on the wall, but not to deny that I'm present, but not to have my presence dictate. You know, those are very I mean, refined in, in, nuances. But really. in, in, in a way, Susan, you just answered the question about Frederick Wiseman, because he also is a fly on the wall. He, he also works in that. I mean, I remember when I worked at the New York Public Library and he did the film about the New York Public Library and came to many of the conversations I held then. I, I so often didn't know he was there. Mm-hmm. I mean, his yeah. his ears were present, if you know what I mean. But I yeah. I, I barely could, I barely could, I, I wasn't sure that he was present. And boy, oh boy, was he present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, what, what do you make of, of, of the role of citizen photography and video in the documentation at the present time of police brutality? Well, we're, we're living extraordinary times. I mean, the many eyes, the many, the many eyes first, and then the many, you know, iPhone second. Mm. I think oh, I've been very struck by how many people, for example, in this period of seeing multiple protests, how many people are there imaging themselves for their own, you know, trails of, of fans or friends or whomever. But um, it's so, so not my inclination. I'm yeah. kind of fascinated by that. On the other hand, um, you know, so we are enormously indebted to the, those who recorded George Floyd's words, you know, I mean, and we just read that it was, there were 20 times that it was, it was, there was a, it's not about how much oxygen it took, which is what the police officer reported to, to again, I can't breathe. I think the fact that um, this moment has galvanized so many sensibilities to, again, to listen so it is hardly the first time we've heard. And I say we because collectively mm, we're experiencing mm. collectively. Um, it's, you know, I'm very struck by the signs that people are holding, what they're saying. And it's not always an original thought, but it's they're identifying with the moment in a way that they didn't in 2014. And they certainly, some did in the 60s. We all know this history. I mean, you and I have lived it at whatever distance from the, the key moments of whichever, whichever point you want to, you know, recall. I mean, we've lived through a lot of history in the last 50 years, and then, of course, there's the 400 years we could refer to also. But it, it feels so much as if, you know, if it isn't photographed, and in, in this case, in, in a way, filmed, it's as if it, it doesn't have the same value. And I, I think of that very simple statement, but I think absolutely accurate of Will Smith, who said, racism is not getting worse, it's getting filmed. Well, I think it's, um, I don't know, I just saw a set of photographs of Richmond, um, the July 4th event, and there was both, there's the, you know, there's the pulling down of the multiple statues and unfortunately the backlash of now other statues. So they're not just the Confederacy. We're, we're dealing with a revisiting of all of history. It's, it's uh, to the extent that we want to understand the anger 
And then it's the celebration, you know, the celebration of owning a new history, whether or not that's even going to be possible. We still don't know. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, going back to, I'm not, I'm less focused on who's making the image. There's a lot of, there are obviously challenges about who has the right to make images. Um, there's the question of um, whose responsibility it is to make images, stepping down, stepping aside, letting more voices be heard, all of that, which I certainly have supported for a, a very long time in my life. But um, I think people being present and bringing their children to be present in this mm, time of history mm. tremendously important. And I don't know, I think we're living through it together. We do not know where we're going to be in four months no. and four years. Um, we didn't expect these last four years, so how could we know what the next four years <sighs> yeah, we really, will brew? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll check in with each other again, Susan. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, in closing, very, very sadly, um, I'm wondering what what Magnum is doing at at this particular moment, if if anything, yeah, uh, connected well, you know, connected to this moment, and and you know, connected to that question in some way, um, you know, what what kind of literacy, image literacy, do we need to develop to to understand the ways in which photography might be used to manipulate us? And I know that Magnum is, is very interested in those kinds of questions. Well, now that's a broad base from which to say, let me just start with actually one of, I mean, a lot of people are complaining about their eyes falling out of their heads because of Zoom. <laughs> And uh, yeah, Zoom, yeah. but in fact, I have to say that Zoom has been a real gift to my multiple communities, my community both within Magnum and the community of Magnum Foundation, which is really a global um, initiative to support, um, you know, image makers from the global south for the most part. And that Zoom has been magically powerful to yeah. connect people in this very difficult period where, first of all, they've been isolated as well questioning whether or not they, what they can contribute in the same way I have, in fact. But this, 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 these little squares, and I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by the grid that you can feel part of. You know, I usually think of circles, not grid and not rectangles. Yeah. No, I think of circles, circles of return and circles of connectivity and holding hands together and all of those metaphors and yet this grid and everyone equidistant and you have no idea where they might be so you feel you're closer to them because you see the what surrounds or at least is behind them um it's been a very powerful kind of point of connection reconnection i mean interconnection whatever i think so i think part of it is given us the, the uh going through something together as isolated as we are a lot of creative strategies of how else we can reach out, how we can become more inclusive. Um, the, you know, the, the Zoom has surprisingly, um, just this weekly Zoom has been very, very reassuring and um, affirmative for this community, both communities, really, both communities. Um, so I, you know, it's not so much what the the literacy, you know, question is. Um, how much can we see, and how much can we imagine that we don't see, mm. and connect ourselves to the what's invisible, and yet we know the pain yeah. of the past is present, and the pain of the past being present, and allowing ourselves to go back again to this notion of listening. 
whether or not we can image it. So I'm trying to let go of whether or not I'm making images, but I'm just able to live amongst the images that I'm I'm receiving, whether or not I'm contributing as much. Um, and 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 hearing hearing really um, this question of hearing, a question of listening, and looking backwards for myself, my own paths, and and um, understanding choices I've made and choices that I can still look forward to making. But it is as much looking back and as it is looking forward right now. Susan, what a pleasure it's been speaking with you. Really, I, I want to wholeheartedly thank you for, for this time. But I'm giving you a hug, but only if you come back to New York so we can ride to the end of the line. Let's ride, to the, let's ride to the end of the line someday, and let's We're, hope that that day comes sometime soon. Yeah, wherever it takes us. Is, wherever is, it takes us. I, 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 I don't want. I don't want to know where it will take us as long as it does. Exactly. A bi- exactly. A big hug we'll, to you and to you. Okay. Bye bye. Cheers. Be well. You Be too. well. Bye bye. Stay well. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support.